This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Gabor Mate. Gabor is an internationally recognized trauma addiction specialist. He's also the author of several paradigm-shifting books on ADHD, embodied trauma, addiction, and childhood development. His latest book, The Myth of Normal, is out today. In it, Gabor explores the link between illness, chronic stress, and the physical and cultural environments that we live in. Today, we talk about our capacity for healing and how toxic stress manifests through our society. We talk about the impact of racism and colonialization on health, and Gabor shares how to recontextualize the path towards health and healing, beginning with compassion. Okay, let's get to Gabor Mate. It's interesting, I you know, kind of making my way through your book, it was very congruent timing for me. There's just been some real unlocks around understanding how to actually take care of myself. Some of the things that we'll get into in our conversation is just, you know, the 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 environmental physical architecture that we live inside of, the cultural architecture that we live inside of really impacts our ability to be well. Even if we are, you know, making every possible accommodation within our own microcosmic environment to be well. So where I wanted to start actually was talking about the title of your book. So the myth of normal trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture. I'd love for you to define what you mean by toxic culture. 
So the analogy that we're given is, uh, say, a laboratory where in a Petri dish, you're culturing microorganisms. We call that a culture. And that is a certain brew that's concocted, which is ideally designed to support the growth and proliferation of those microorganisms. Now, if a large number of those microbes started to die off or to get sick, you'd say it's a toxic culture. Now, if you look at our culture in general, the rate of addiction is going up. The rate of childhood mental health conditions go up, ADHD, anxiety, depression, childhood suicide is going up. The, the number of people dying of overdoses in the States has dramatically risen over the last few years. More people are being diagnosed with autoimmune illness. If human beings were the microorganisms in that culture broth, we'd call that a toxic culture. And I'm saying ours is. I'm saying that by its very nature, it it, it makes people sick. When we're thinking about being sick or sickness, can you explain how to reframe disease as a process as opposed to something that just happens? Because I think very much in in our culture, we we tend to see getting sick a little bit as a surprise. It's hard sometimes to put together the pieces that brought us there. So in all my years as a family physician and then working in palliative care with terminally ill people, and then working for 12 years with the highly addicted population in Vancouver, people that were dependent on all kinds of substances and are dying and were dying because of it. I, I began to see increasingly that people's mental or emotional health conditions were related to their lives. In other words, they didn't just suddenly come along for no reason. Addiction, for example, is in every case a response to emotional pain and trauma and any addiction, whether it's to pornography or gambling or to drugs, is an attempt to escape emotional distress. Then you have to ask, where did that distress come from? Well, that came from people's life experience. And I found the same is true of chronic medical illness as well, such as autoimmune diseases and, and, and so on. Now, most of the time when we speak about illness, we think of it as, like a, as, a, as a thing in itself, like if it had a life of its own. So people say, for example, I can talk about myself. I've been diagnosed with ADHD. So I can say, I have ADHD. But the very way of putting it assumes something. It assumes that there's a thing called ADHD, there's an entity called me, and this entity me has this thing. So it's like, I have a cell phone. There's me, there's my cell phone. We're separate. It's a, this, this cell phone's got a nature of its own, totally separate from me. I can pick it up, I can put it down, I can give it away, I can drop it, lift it, whatever. When I say I have ADHD or I have multiple sclerosis or I have this or that, I'm making the same assumption that there's this thing called the disease and there's the I that has it. But what I found and what science actually shows more than overwhelmingly is that diseases aren't separate things that people have. They're processes that happen inside people's bodies and, and psyches. And these processes don't come along accidentally. They are reflecting of our life's experience. So, for example, if I go back just for a moment to this ADHD that I have, quote-unquote, the tuning out that characterizes ADHD is not a disease. It's a defense mechanism against stress, which I developed as an infant under conditions of war and racism in Eastern Europe. So as an infant, the way I coped with all the stress and tragedy around me was to tune out. 
the tuning out then becomes wired into my brain. And then 40 years later, they tell me, or 50 years later, you got this disease called ADHD. No, I don't have a disease. It's a process that developed in response to my environment. And I'm saying the same thing is true for most chronic illnesses. And the practical difference is if we realize that the process reflects that person's life, if that person gets some agency over their lives and makes them changes, that process can change. This is true whether it's chronic intestinal upset or whether it's colitis or whether it's multiple sclerosis or whether it's depression or anything else. So once you recognize the process in relationship to the life, and if you see, well, what is it about that life that supports that process or 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 or, or furthers that process, then we can get some agency and capacity for healing. So that's why it's important to make that distinction. I have ADHD as well, and I was diagnosed when I was, I guess, maybe seven, six, seven, or eight, somewhere in there. And, you know, I would identify my family of origin being extremely fraught and complex and at many times not feeling safe. And I also got a number of other diagnoses or multiple diagnoses. (laughs) I think now I'm like in my my mid-30s, you know, there's this there is this new framework as you just express that the environment can impact our neurology in a way that now fits very neatly into this dsm but if we actually sit with what was going on environmentally there's there's a lot more there to kind of cling on to that isn't necessarily you know pathophysiology it's not disease it's it's actually the the environment that we were in. So it's really helpful to hear you unpack that. And it actually brings me to a quote from your book that I want to read, which connects, I think, a lot of what we're talking about. So racism is another risk factor for asthma. In a large cohort of Black American women, experiences of racial discrimination were associated with the adult onset of the disease. And that raises an inescapable question we should all ponder. Is the inflammation and airway constriction of these women a case of individual pathology or the manifestation of a social malaise? And that that quote for me really just stopped me because I think so often I definitely myself am talk a lot about how, you know, the, the, the perpetual existence in this body gives me no time off. There's no moment, even if I consciously feel a sense of safety or comfort subconsciously, I'm really being told you're not safe, you're not safe all the time. And so to hear it described so succinctly in that sentence, that experience was really powerful. Well, it's very interesting when you take asthma as an example. By the way, that that's not the only study that links racism and ill health, and as you know, because there's a whole chapter on it. But let's just take asthma as an example. And people say, well, how can racism cause inflammation and narrowing of the airways? Well, how do we treat asthma? If you've ever been treated for asthma, we're giving you inhalations or injections of two substances. One is adrenaline 
the other is cortisol. Now, what are or some or an analog of them? So, what are adrenaline and cortisol? They're the body's stress hormones. And if, in fact, if you look across the whole range of medical treatments for inflammation of the bowel, the lungs, the the brain, the the guts, the skin, we give stress hormones as the treatment. But we never ask ourselves, gosh, does stress has something to do with the onset of this condition? Which it does in every case. Now, racism, the threat and the emotional, how should I put it, debility that, that's imposed by racism are stressful experiences. Stress isn't just some mental event, it's a physiological event. It exhausts the body's stress apparatus. Now we have to give you extra stress hormones to keep your lungs from being inflamed and the airways from being constricted. So there's a direct physiological pathway between social and emotional experiences and our physiology. And that unity of mind and body and the social environment is what this whole book is all about. And you can't understand human beings as just biological entities without looking at their social and personal relationships and the cultural context in which they have to live. And so in Canada, where I live, an indigenous woman has six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of anybody else. Indigenous people used to have no rheumatoid arthritis at all before colonization. So it's not genetic, and it's not strictly biological. It's a consequence of a whole history of oppression and deprivation. Yeah. I'm just taking that in because I, I think I can safely say to you, you know, everything we hear and take in has some sort of response in the body, right? And so, you know, when I hear you mention words like oppression and colonialization and rheumatoid arthritis, and and I think about how our culture speaks to those things now, it's just heavy. It's heavy to know and accept that that is the reality that we exist inside of. Well, it's a scientific reality and there's only tens of thousands of studies that prove it. And the, the, the unfortunate fact is that most physicians are not trained to understand those links. So the average person goes to the a physician. I know a rheumatologist in Los Angeles who understands this unity. Uh, she actually read one of my previous books and she said it totally changed her practice. Now when people come to her with joint problems and inflammation problems. She asked them about trauma. She asked them about personal histories, about stress, but she doesn't dare talk about it with her colleagues because she'd be laughed out of her profession. You know, there are exceptions, of course, but the average patient goes to a physician with inflammation of whatever part of the body or with depression or with anxiety or with ADHD. They're never going to be asked, what happened to you as a child? What was the cultural background to your family's existence? What stresses exist in your life? How do you feel about yourself as a human being? These questions are never asked. And yet those questions are crucial, not just to understanding the underlying physical or mental health condition, but also to healing them. So it's a huge gap between science on the one hand and medical practice on the other. Yeah. You know, before we go into this huge gap between medical science and where things are, where things need to be going in terms of how we're, we're looking at our bodies, something I wanted to mention just personally, you know, I, 
I'm sure you're familiar with ACEs. And for those that aren't, ACEs is this scale that basically calculates how adverse your childhood experiences were in, in relationship to traumas. It stands for adverse childhood experiences. Adverse. And such as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, a, 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 a rancorous divorce, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, a parent being mentally ill, violence in the family, neglect. These are all the adverse childhood experiences. And for each of them, the risk of addiction goes up, mental health issues goes up, autoimmune disease goes up, cancer goes up, and so on. So in other words, there's a clear link between early childhood adversity and adult pathology. But what I wanted to share about ACEs is that I have a score that's it vacillates between nine and 10. It yeah. really just depends on what I remember when I take it, because as you know, with trauma, you forget and remember things. And so, you know, again, this conversation is so helpful because as I'm sitting dealing with all of these kind of health things, I had a bunch of fibroids that were recently taken out. You know, I have to remember kind of my own origin story and how much more at risk I am for a number of different types of diseases as a result of, of having such a high ACEs score. Well, the only thing I would say to you, though, is it's not a given, precisely because these things are processes. If you transform your relationship to yourself, in other words, if you heal that trauma, that risk diminishes tremendously. So it's not like it's a linear, if you had that, therefore this is going to happen. If you had that, the risk of that happening goes up, but that depends very much on what you can learn about yourself and how you can transform your life, which is the entire point of my work and my and my writing is to help people transform their relationship to themselves so that those, like I myself, you know, if you look at my first year of life as a Jewish infant other than the Nazis, you know, te terrible experiences. But I don't have to be defined by that for the rest of my life. Although it's taken a lot of work to heal from the traumas that I sustained then, I know that the work is entirely possible. I have to say, your job is even more daunting, I have to say, because you're Black in a racist society and because you're a woman in a patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. And so that means, so my challenges happened when I was an infant, but in North America, I passed for a middle-class Caucasian male. So that means I'm not facing the same challenges. as it's, We think we all live in the same world. No, we don't. Mm -hmm. You know, That doesn't mean your challenges are insurmountable. It just means that there's an extra layer of awareness that you have to have that I don't because I'm front, fundamentally belong to a privileged stratum, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I think, you know, definitely over the past, say, five or six years, but especially over the past two, there's been a lot of deeper emotional and psychological and physical work that I've been doing in order to to reframe and reclaim a lot of my like material self, if that makes sense. So your true self. Yeah, very much. It's interesting when you when we started the conversation I was talking to you about some of my health stuff and you said that I was going through a learning process and I was like, that is exactly right. And I think I needed to hear those two words specifically together because some of what I'm doing right now, you know, I'm, I'm at an age where I, I feel a little resistant 
to learning new things and kind of like it's been working so far and I'm okay enough, I think. And so I, I think I just appreciate, <laughs> even though I consider myself a lifelong learner and I love learning, but it's it can feel very externalized. I think when you have to turn it in on yourself yeah. and have to kind of like relook at your own systems, there can be a lot of friction. So, well, look, yeah. look, first of all, I laughed because I recognize that frustration, you know, number mm -hmm. one. Number two, I laugh because I'm 78, and honest to God, I've often said this. I'm 78, and I'm I'm glad I'm not as young as stupid as I was when I was 77. So the, <laughs> I hate to tell you, but it's going to go on and on and yeah. on. Yeah, no, I appreciate, again, I so appreciate that. I needed, these are all things that I needed to hear. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So you talked about being an infant yeah. and, and, and growing up under the oppression of Nazism. I want to talk about childbirth because I was a doula for, you know, oh. almost 10 years before I moved into health education and making it digital and loom, da, da, da. But... It was really striking to me a lot of what you mentioned in that chapter in terms, and, and, I, know, and I want to mention this quote where it said, we all need to realize that entering a pregnancy should feel like entering a shrine, a sacred place in time that a baby is being built. You know, obviously I, I, I deeply align with that sentiment, but there are definitely is and especially in america this feeling that pregnancy is not important and that it doesn't need protection it's also seen as an illness i i think oftentimes one of the things i always find really amusing and and dark at the same time was that you can apply for short-term disability when you're pregnant in the united states because the only way that you can get more support is for us to put you in a disability framework, which is bizarre. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I really would love to hear just more about how you view the process of pregnancy and what it would look like if we reallocated public funds to support pregnant women. So I was trained, you know, in my training as a physician, when you talked about prenatal care, it was always about ultrasounds and blood tests and physical measurements and so on. Nothing about the emotional state of the mother. And yet we know now 
not just we know now, it's like traditionally people have always intuited, but now we have the science to prove it, that the emotional states of the mom has a big impact on the healthy brain development of the child. So the more stressed the mom is, the more the hormones of stress are going through to the baby, and that's affecting the baby's development in, in adverse ways. So, for example, we can stress pregnant animals in the laboratory in the second trimester and predict that their offspring as adults will be more likely to use cocaine and alcohol to soothe themselves. We can do studies on 40-year-olds now and show the impact of their mother's stress 40, in, during pregnancy 40 years ago. So this science is well established. Now, despite that, the average physician is not trained at all to even talk about emotional and psychological factors and the need for emotional balance and support during pregnancy. So this is an aspect of prenatal care that's completely missing and from social awareness is completely missing. So a lot of women have to work at very stressful jobs. A lot of spouses don't realize that how they're behaving stresses their partners and how that stress affects the baby that they're both looking to have. So this awareness, despite the scientific studies that have long elucidated this and the traditional wisdom that has supported it, is largely ignored. And then we come to birth itself. And again, as a physician, I was trained in the science of interference. So that I actually was working with midwives who were illegal, illegal here in British Columbia then, but they asked me would I work with them. And I'm always interested in new something new. So I, I began to work with these midwives. And I, I learned that you don't have to cut every one, woman open when they're giving birth. You don't have to lie a woman on her back and put her feet in stirrups, you know, to give birth. In other words, the traditional birthing practices of human beings have been right all along. Now, modern obstetrics can save lives and the lives of children and, and mothers. That's indisputable and it's admirable. But not at the rate that we're interfering now. The cesarean section rate here in British Columbia and probably close in, in California's way, is up to close to 40%. It should be no more than 10 or 15%. In other words, we've made a perfectly normal process into an act of pathology, and we treat it as such. Well, what if we realized how important the emotional states of the mother are, not just during the pregnancy, but also during birth? Because a lot of birth complications happen, not because there's a really a mechanical problem, but because we make mothers so uptight and so scared that their bodies stop functioning properly. So there's so much to be learned from traditional wisdom and also from modern science. If we combine, combine that with the best obstetrical practices, we'd have a great system. But unfortunately, we put all the attention on the mechanical interference and not on the overall context. In your book, you also outline five levels of compassion yeah. on the path to healing and wholeness, including the compassion of recognition. And I think a lot of the conversation we're having is about recognition. It is about surfacing things, especially when we're talking about pregnancy and childbirth. You know, why is compassion critical for the end of chronic suffering? And what, what does compassion really look like? So... Compassion is, well, the the word origin actually is Latin for to suffer with. So passion is suffering and calm is with. And so 
ordinary compassion just recognizes the suffering of another person and is naturally moved to do something about it, you know? So that's what I call ordinary human compassion. Most of us, unless we're very hurt and our development distorted in our childhoods, then we become sociopaths and so on. But most of us are quite capable of ordinary human compassion, but it's not enough. It's not enough to feel bad that somebody's suffering. You also have to be able to understand the source of that suffering. And that's what I call the compassion of understanding. So when I'm working with people severely drug addicted, it's not enough that I feel bad that they're suffering. I also have to ask, well, why are they suffering? Oh, they're suffering because their addiction is trying to soothe some deep pain that they have. And that pain originated in their lives, in their childhoods. And, and and in the stresses of modern life. That's what I call the compassion of understanding. That's the second level. The compassion of recognition is when I was working with these severely addicted adults, I saw myself in all of them. The only thing that different was that they had more adversity in their lives than I had had. But the craving, the emptiness, the need to soothe, the dishonesty, the manipulation that they exhibited boy oh boy so have i in my life as my wife could tell you and so that compassion recognition simply says i'm not different from you you know any, anything that's in you is in me as well so you don't make yourself into some kind of a, a superior to somebody else because they're suffering more you know that's what the compassion of recognition is and then as i distinguish two other levels of compassion but why is compassion important because we've talked about safety and 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 how you and I both both may have lacked a sense of safety in our childhoods. Well, in the absence of safety, people shut down and they get defensive. Now, if we want people to to transform, to heal, to learn about themselves, they have to experience compassion that makes them feel safe. And so, as a, one of my spiritual teachers says, only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. So if I want people to understand the truth about something, I better speak to them compassionately, not with judgment, not with prejudice, but with all the levels of compassion that I, I talk about. And the same thing is true for yourself, for myself as individuals. If we want to heal, we have to approach ourselves with compassion. Like, take a, take a simple example. If I said to you, why are you doing this? What would be your response emotionally? I, I literally, as you said, why you're doing this, I kind of pulled back in the upper part of my chest and top of my belly. I was like, oh, I just felt constricted. Hmm. Now, what if I said, hmm, I wonder why you're doing this? That feels less, <laughs> feels, that feels less intense. <laughs> feels a little bit more like I'm going to lean forward. It's just, it's more compassionate. That's the whole point. Now, the same, the, the same thing when you and I talk to ourselves. So if I say to myself, why did I do that? There's no compassion in it. There's an accusation in it. But if yeah. I say, hmm, I wonder why I did that. What was going on for me? Now I can engage with the question, you know, in, a, in an open-minded way. So that's why compassion is important. So you say there is a crucial difference between cure and healing. And you mentioned healing a number of times yeah. just a few moments ago. What is the difference between cure and healing? And why is this distinction important? Let's say you have addiction, okay? Opiate addiction. 
And let's say through some medical intervention, some pharmacology or other intervention, I can get you to stop using opiates. Then you might say that you're cured of your opiate habit, which is not a bad thing in itself. But the word healing means something deeper. Healing actually means wholeness or becoming whole. So underneath your opiate addiction, there's some deep pain, emotional pain, pain about the self, pain about existence itself. And that that pain is an impact of trauma. The And the healing means that you heal the underlying causes and you become a whole person again, not just that you cure a particular disease or a symptom. So healing is becoming whole. You can cure something without that person becoming whole. Sometimes people become whole without being cured. When I was working in palliative care, mm-hmm. working with mm-hmm. dying, dying people, I saw that sometimes, that somebody would actually say, for the first time in my life, in engaging with this disease, I become truly myself, and I'm so grateful, mm-hmm. even though I'm going to lose my life. Now, I don't recommend that way of learning, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just illustrating the difference. The, the healing is becoming whole in oneself, mm-hmm. and at peace. Cure is the getting rid of a disease. Sometimes the two go together, but they don't necessarily. That's really powerful, and I think is really something to sit with because oftentimes and you can correct me if this is if this isn't what you've seen people oftentimes have co-occurring illnesses or comorbidities it's usually not just one thing that you have and so this idea of curing sometimes can leave you in this kind of whack-a-mole situation where you're just going after the next thing that comes up yeah. And yeah. And so this idea that healing can even show up inside of death, I think is really is really powerful. It's really wonderful to hear you unpack because I think it's giving me a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. Well, the the example I give in the book, or one example I give is a man I think I called Sam. He was a, a man who came to a healing retreat I led and actually with a psychedelic plant. And he said he had ALS, which is a condition that affects the nervous system and it's paralyzing and it's usually, but not always, that's really interesting to consider, fatal. And he said, by that time he was losing his capacity to speak. And he said, I came here because I want to live. And after the healing process of the whole week, the retreat, the interactions with others, he got in touch with his trauma. He got in touch with his self-suppression. He got in touch with how disconnected he had been from himself all his life. And he said at the end, in a much stronger voice, when I first said I wanted to live, I thought I meant I wanted to live longer. But now I realize I want to live, that while I'm alive, I want to be fully there for my life in a way that I've never been. He did die of his disease a year and a half later, but he had an amazing last year and a half, and his family was so grateful throughout and afterwards. So that he was a clear example of what it means to heal without being cured again it's not something i recommend to anybody no but it's an example of what's possible mm. he had a real life that year and a half connected to himself intimately connected to others connected to nature to every aspect of life thinking about connection something i want to ask you so 
you wrote this book together with your son. Yes. And I have so many questions, which we will not have time for all of them. But the 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 first question is, what was that like? Because I feel like so many adults, myself included, have complex relationships with our parents. And it seems like your ability to write a book together is a testament to the two of you figuring something out about how to evolve or negotiate yourselves as two autonomous people working on something, you know, extremely communal. As someone who's written a book, I know it's just, there's so many hands involved and brains involved and ideas involved. So long-winded way of saying, how do you two negotiate your relationship? Has it always been easy or how have you, how, how, how did you come to write a book together? It's been a really difficult relationship much of our lives. In fact, we have a two book contract. This is the first one. (laughs) The second one is going to be called hello again, a fresh start for adult children and their parents. And this is based on a workshop that we do. In fact, we'll be doing it on Omega in New York in October, and we'll do it in, Van- do it in Vancouver in November. We've been doing it for five or six years. And believe me, it's been a struggle because basically I, I passed my trauma on to my kids. I didn't, but I couldn't help it. I hadn't dealt with it yet. So if you don't deal with it, you pass it on. So Daniel talks in the book about how insecure and unsafe he felt in the context of our family home. Never knowing when my wife, Ray, and I, and we've been together 54 years now, married, but when the kids were small, it was a very tense, stormy relationship, and those kids absorbed that. So there's all kinds of ways in which we had a difficult relationship. And writing the book was both an act of faith, also a product of the work we had done together already on our relationship, and also a new opportunity to work things out even deeper. So our relationship, by the end of the book, was quite different than in the beginning. We had our tense moments. And what happens, of course, is that when I get tense, and I was tense sometimes writing the book because I, I really thought I took on more than I can possibly fulfill this time. I, this time, my utter incompetence will be exposed to the whole world, you know, and never mind four previous books, but this one is going to fail. And I I had some fears. And when I was when I'm tense, in Daniel, that triggers the tension that he felt as a child when I was tense. And then we'd have some very tense interactions. We really had to work on it. At the end, I have to say, it was a very beautiful process, mutually respectful. It was a real flow by the end of just us passing the material back and forth to each other. But we had to work at it. And in this new book, Hello Again, we'll be talking about what we've learned about how adults children and parents can refresh their relationship, which so many so many people want, but they just don't know how to do it. What's one suggestion you would make around refreshing that adult-parent relationship, if there is one thing that you would share about that? If you're the parent, then I would say do a lot of deep listening about the child's experience, not defensively, not to justify or explain or protect yourself, but just to actually get their experience. Even if you don't agree, agreement that this thing has nothing to do with it, just get what their experience was. 
if you're the adult child, I would say, do your best to see your parent as a human being. You know, and, and see, I was, I was about your age when I became a father. I think I was 33. Just 30, uh, I'm 35. Okay, I was 33 when I became a father. I was a pretty immature creature at 35. <laughs> you know, now, I'm not saying you are. In fact, you've done more work on yourself by now. I know that than I had by that age. But the point is, I did my best. I loved my kids. But you know what? In so many ways, my best reflected the stuff that I hadn't worked out in myself yet. I'm not saying to drop your anger. If you have anger towards your parent, well, feel the anger and work it through. But don't blame. Drop the blame. Mm. I see the humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, with advice. And it's, it's, it's sort of maybe facile even, but... It's, it's it's an answer to your question. Truly, that's why we do this workshop is because it's a deep process. Yeah, I, I, I don't feel any, that there was anything facile about that answer. I think it's simplicity is, is helpful because when you have parents or you come from a family of origin where there was a lot of fear or, or lack of safety or trauma, the, the stories that we tell ourselves are, are very complex, really layered narratives and sometimes you know to hear again like you've done so many times in this conversation reframing something or offering something really simple to just kind of sit gently on top of whatever we've created for ourselves can be extremely helpful (laughs) because sometimes we forget that we can live in something a little bit more simple even if it's very painful yeah yeah. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I, I've loved talking to you. I could talk to you for so much longer. I just really appreciate the uh, very personal way that you approached this conversation. So it, that made it a lot of fun for me as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Gabor Mate. His new book, The Myth of Normal, is out today. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.